I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello and welcome to 30 for 30 podcast from ESPN Films and ESPN Audio. My name is Jody Abigail. This week, episode three of our fourth season, a story all about a pivotal moment, a protest in long distance running. Running is the most popular form of exercise in the world. Today, around the globe, there are more than a thousand marathons annually. But before the 1970s, running, especially here in the United States, was a fringe sport. No one even made running shoes in the United States. But for women runners, the trouble went way past a lack of shoes. Women were actively discouraged from running for a number of reasons, both within the running community and by society at large. This week's story is about a time when that started to change, a time bracketed by two key moments captured in two key photographs. One you may have seen, the other probably not. This episode was produced by Transmitter Media. Hillary Frank is our host. Here we go with The Six Who Sat. When I was a young girl, people, even the milkman, the mailman, would go to my mother and say, is there something wrong with your little girl? I see her out running. People would look, what are they running from? Where are they going? Is there a problem? They'd throw something out the window at you from a car, you know, maybe like a piece of paper or a soda bottle. And everybody's dog would chase you and want to bite you. I remember an instance running around with my running buddies, all women, and some guy came up and pinched one of us. Pinched on the rump. And my girlfriends would say to me, you know, if you do that, you're going to get big legs. You're going to look like a boy. You're going to grow hair on your chest. When Catherine Switzer was starting high school in 1959, she wanted to get on the field hockey team. Her father told her she'd make it if she ran a mile every day. She took his advice and she made the team, but she fell in love with running. I never felt closer to my body or to nature or to the universe or to God or whatever you want to call it than when I was running. And so running in itself always made me feel totally confident, brave, courageous, and at one with my total sense of capability. So much so that in 1967, Catherine found herself training to run a marathon. But people would say, oh, you know, you shouldn't do that. You're never going to have children. Your uterus is going to fall out. Even her doctor thought it was a bad idea. I mentioned to him that I was running. And I'll never forget because he was sitting across from me at his desk with a cigarette. And he said something like, why would an attractive woman like you want to be running a marathon? You really can impair your ability to conceive and your uterus because you're going to be constantly impacting it and pounding the pavement. Um, I would definitely not recommend this because um, you could, you know, have a prolapsed uterus. This idea was something a lot of doctors believed at the time. I just remember walking out of the office and saying, you know, this is really such BS. You know, if you have children, 
it's going to be much more injurious to your system than than running. Uh, He didn't see it that way, obviously. Not only was Catherine up against doctors who didn't take her running seriously, she was also up against an entire industry and sports media who didn't take women seriously. High on the list of outstanding bowlers in the women's division, noted for her beauty of form, <laughs> of course that's bowling form, is Tilly Taylor. Well, good luck to all of you girls, and uh, or is it women? I guess that's the word. Uh... Brian, you can call us anything you want because we love you. Come Thank on, you. give him a little... How do you top that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Kathy? Oh, Kathy? Me too. This is Brian Madden enjoying himself in New York. <laughs> But then, in 1967, Catherine made running history. And I'm probably best known as the woman who broke the gender barrier at the Boston Marathon. By custom and rule, it has been an all-male event. But today, somewhere among the thousand pair of hairy legs, somewhere in the swirl of liniment vapor, there was perfume and women. In past years, a few other women had snuck into the Boston Marathon, most famously Bobby Gibb, who had run faster times than many men, But Catherine was the first woman to enter and receive an official number, 261. I signed my name, K.V. Switzer, when I registered for the Boston Marathon. I was not trying to defraud anybody or fool anybody. That's how I had started signing my name since I was 12 years old. Catherine started the race with her coach, Arnie Briggs, her boyfriend, Tom Miller, and a cross-country teammate, John Leonard. And I was so happy because I was really surrounded by like-minded people. At a mile and a half, the press truck came by us. The bus was full of reporters and photographers. And we were laughing at first and waving because they were obviously all in a flutter about a girl in the race wearing a bib number. Catherine ran behind the bus. She was in a rhythm, along with the rest of the runners. You hear the pat, 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 pat of running shoes. All of a sudden, I heard a scraping noise of leather shoes. It was the race director, Jock Semple. And I turned, and the moment I turned, I saw the fiercest face of any guy I'd ever seen. An official named, appropriately enough, Jock, ran after her and tried to rip the number off her back. Race officials were scandalized. They said women weren't allowed to run more than a mile and a half. And they grabbed me and he screamed at me, get the hell out of my race and give me those bib numbers. My first instinct was to run because I was really scared. He was cursing at me. He was clearly out of control. I was just trying to get away. And he was pulling me by the shirt. And my instinct was, I'm in some kind of bad dream. I'm in in a nightmare here surrounded by yelling people, grinding cameras, clicking shutters. Pictures of this moment were printed in papers all over the country. Catherine, number 261, twisting around mid-run to see Jock Semple charging at her in a dark overcoat. Jock Semple yanking the number on her back. And then... Boom. My boyfriend hit him, and he flew to the air as far as I could see. And suddenly I was really terrified. I thought, oh my God, we've killed this guy. After I got over my fear, I got very angry and I was determined to finish the race. And I remember turning to my coach and saying, I'm going to finish this race on my hands and my knees if I have to. Because if I don't finish it, everybody's going to think women don't belong here, they don't deserve to run, and they can't do it anyway. I've got to prove that women can do it. 
Most of the male runners figured if any woman wants to run 26 miles in a driving rain, let her run. But veteran Boston trainer Jock Semple thought the whole thing was silly. No, there's enough competition for women. What the heck? Why did they want to tackle the, the, the toughest thing in the world? It's just the uh, women and their stubbornness just want to do something that they're not supposed to do. That's all there is to it. You know that. You're married. By the time I finished the race, I was a non-entity. I was totally banned and totally disqualified. A non-entity. Because of the rules set by the Amateur Athletic Union, or the AAU, they were the organization that governed all amateur competitive sports in the United States. The race director had gone onto the finish line and called the AAU, had me disqualified from the race, and had me expelled from the Amateur Athletic Union for running with men for running more than a mile and a half, which was the dis- longest distance of for women in cross country, for fraudulently entering the race because I'd signed the race um, form with my initials, and finally because I had run without a chaperone. So these were AAU rules that still existed um, for a 20-year-old woman in 1967. We're the AAU, a bunch of local amateurs that give athletes a chance to compete, develop, and excel. The AAU organized every major track and field event, every marathon. They decided who was worthy of competing in other countries, who would go to the Olympics. They ruled with an absolutely iron fist, and we were all deathly afraid of them. Support your local amateurs with your time, your money, yourself. My name is Amby Burfoot. I'm the 1968 winner of the Boston Marathon and a longtime editor and writer for Runner's World magazine. Many male runners were sympathetic to Catherine Switzer, but nobody wanted to cross the AAU. We were very fearful that the AAU would rule us ineligible to compete and people kowtowed to all of their rules uh, because the officials of all the road races and track meets were intimidated by them also. If you were banned from the AAU, you weren't allowed to compete at all in any other races because you might contaminate the rest of the field. Contamination. This is a word the AAU used a lot. And there were many ways to be contaminated. One way was by running with a non-amateur. A professional. If there was one professional athlete in a road race, let's say he was a major league baseball player for some reason and he jogged in a race that you were in, he was professional because he was paid and his participation in the race contaminated you. And you could be contaminated by running with a woman. When women started competing in the uh, sport of long-distance running, the contamination rule early on was applied to them as well. And you could, you could catch the flu and never be allowed to go to the Olympic Games, so to speak. I would say that the AAU was taking a paternalistic look at women's sports. They were looking at their wives and daughters and imagining, can we possibly allow this? And therefore, it was the domain of men. Catherine Switzer was banned from the AAU. She wouldn't be ranked and her time wouldn't be recorded. But race directors still found a way for her to run, unofficially. I was invited to many, many races 
when I was banned as an athlete. And it was hilarious. And there was my bib number, let's say, you know, 32, and it said unofficial on it. And then I would uh, finish the race and I would get the unofficial first woman prize and they would award me an unofficial trophy. (laughs) But being unofficial made it difficult for women to advance. And not just Catherine, but more and more female runners around the country. It just seemed like they were behind the times. Catherine wasn't the only one who had crashed the Boston Marathon. Nina Cusick was another female runner frustrated by the AAU, and she wanted to fight back. She wasn't a long-limbed, leggy runner, but she moved. She motored. She was lively, feisty, short brown hair, often wore a headband, and had a wicked little laugh and little giggle. Well, Mrs. Cusick, uh, I'm so attractive about running. It's so earthy, you know. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's something you, you do all on your own. You, you create your run. Nobody helps you and nobody hinders you. Uh, and you're just out there in the environment, whatever it may be. And, and it's just you, you and the world. <laughs> I knew of Nina Cusick because she ran the Boston Marathon. Of course, I couldn't enter. It wasn't official. Nina didn't start out as a runner, but running intrigued her. Because I was a speed skater and bike racer, and we used to run for uh, dry training in ice skating. And then we heard about the Boston Marathon, my husband and I, and two of the ice skating friends. And we decided that we would train and enter the Boston Marathon. Nina couldn't get a bib or formally enter the race. But the course ran through public streets, so no one could stop her from running it. And so we all got in the car and drove to Boston and ran the marathon. Oh, I was full of admiration for her. Catherine could see what was clear to every runner who watched Nina. She was a gifted athlete. Oh, I was competitive, yeah. I mean, but I did it because I loved it. And if you're competitive, you can work harder at it. Nina became the second woman to run a marathon in under three hours. I was watching every race she ran, and she was getting faster. And I wasn't improving as fast as she was. So naturally, she piqued my competitive spark to train harder. And she simply wanted equality in the sport for us. And she didn't want um, it to be considered unusual or that we were oddities. So I was very happy when I finally got a chance to meet her. Nina and Catherine joined forces in 1970, along with a few other women who wanted to get the AAU rules changed. It was Sarah Mae Berman in Boston, Nina Cusick in Long Island, me in Syracuse, another woman in New York City named Patricia Tarnowski. And in California, there was a very big women's running movement, and they were very vocal also about their need for equality. Still, the AAU insisted that, quote, only a handful of older women were involved in long-distance running. My attitude was, if you give people the opportunity, they will emerge. If you intimidate them, they're not going to show up. Nina decided something had to be done. You had to be somebody involved in the AAU to get a rules change. And so I joined the AAU. Nina joined the Long Distance and Women's Committees and became deeply involved in her local chapter. And she went to committee meeting after committee meeting after committee meeting in New York. My mother, you know, would have to babysit. I'm doing all kinds of paperwork. And then in 1971, 
Nina made a breakthrough. I forget where the convention was, but I went to the annual convention. That was where all the committees met to agree on changes to rules. I got the rules changed. Uh, women could run up to 10 miles, and certain women could run the marathon. Well, Mrs. Cusick, you were in the Boston Marathon recently, weren't you? Yes, yes. Uh, Tell me about that. This is the first year that uh, the women have been officially recognized. And there were uh, eight women, and we had 100% finishes, and the men didn't rate nearly as well. <laughs> it was a huge win, with a hitch. Only some women could run some marathons. Whatever that was supposed to mean. The AAU decided which women could run. Women who wanted to run longer than 10 miles needed special permission. And there was another hitch. If women were led into a men's race... We had to start at a different starting place or starting time from the men. Women running with men had to be scored differently and start separately. Because you can't compete with the men. You know, you can't take advantage of running with men. You have to run to your own competitors. You know, having a man in front of you breaking the wind... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they didn't say it that way, but that's the way they meant it. We think running, in a way, is above gender and divisiveness and exclusion. It's about inclusion. Also, when you're included, you're included. If you're invited to a dinner party, you don't go sit at the children's table. Meanwhile, in New York City, there was a man who also wanted a seat at the grown-up table. Fred Leibowitz was born in 1932 in Romania. He was a character. He was unique. Uh, incredible backstory to Fred. When I was a kid, all I wanted to survive. You know, we were hiding from the Nazis, then hiding from the Soviets, and finally going out into the world and, and seek a better life. Fred and I talked every day. He was a very close friend of mine. George Hirsch is a longtime runner. He's the founding publisher of New York Magazine and became the publisher of Runner's World. He met Fred in 1969. He probably was a, an ordinary guy just to observe him, but he was hardly an ordinary person. Leibowitz became Lebo in America. After World War II, Fred settled in New York. And uh, took up later on in my life a sport which was so strange to the world. The strange sport of running. Fred generally wore running shoes, no matter what. That was kind of a signature. For a number of years, I, I experimented in going everywhere in my running clothes, all appointments, no matter where I went, whether a meeting with the mayor or, or at a concert, I would wear running clothes. Fred sensed that running could become a big-time thing. He got that. Back then, the Boston Marathon was the only big city marathon in existence. New York did have a marathon, but... When only a handful of runners left the starting line for that first New York Marathon in 1970, hardly anyone noticed. In the beginning, it was a pretty amateurish event, just four loops around the park. I have to say, the, the, the world did not wake up and notice it. Fred Lebo noticed. Before long, he was the New York Roadrunners Club president and the marathon's director. The New York Roadrunners Club was small and scrappy. They met in people's apartments, in sandwich shops. But Fred 
was a dreamer. And Fred very much had a, a goal, a spoken goal. He wasn't shy about it. His goal? New York City was going to be the best marathon in the world. He has certainly generated big-time publicity. Critics have called him a blatant self-promoter, which he doesn't deny. To be honest, if one is not a promoter in New York City, in this age, not going to go too far. In 1972, Fred had his most cunning idea yet, and it involved his two favorite things, running and women. Fred was a great ladies' man. He loved women. Called them women with his accent. Fred was well aware of the women's fight with the AAU, and he knew Nina Cusick. She was in the New York Roadrunners Club. We'd probably talk to him every other day or something. (laughs) They got together and collaborated on a publicity stunt, which was designed to grow the New York Marathon and prove that women were capable of running more than a few miles. This idea of Fred's, it was showy, and it celebrated a certain part of the female figure the part used for running. There's always a great crop of legs in this country, but legs, like any beautiful growing thing, need moisture. When women shave, they take moisture away. They should use this, crazy legs. A sponsor, Johnson's Wax, had created a ladies' shave cream called Crazy Legs, and they were looking for a product launch. Catherine says the company thought they could capitalize on these women runners and the attention they were now receiving. It could be great press coverage for their brand new product, beyond just a commercial on TV. Not just for great shave, but for great skin. Use Crazy Legs. It'll be the best year for legs ever. Crazy. When they saw Nina and me in the Boston Marathon and all the publicity we had gotten, they went to Fred Lebo and said, we want to do a women's marathon in New York City. We want Nina and Catherine there and we could call this the Crazy Legs Marathon. He said, how about we do one lap of Central Park, which is exactly six miles, and we call it the mini marathon because the mini skirt was in fashion then. Nina and I were wearing mini skirts. And I said, cool, that's very cool. Is it mini, midi, or maxi? Every woman gets to choose, and that is women's lib. So he proposed the Crazy Legs mini-marathon to Johnson's Wax. They loved the idea. What do you think of this Crazy Legs thing here? Oh, I think it's fantastic because this is a real breakthrough for women. The big thing is is that women are um, being recognized as runners and as athletes and have a race that's exclusively theirs. But the sponsor, the mini-skirt reference, the clever name, this still was not enough for Fred Lebo. Fred said to Nina and me, we're not getting enough publicity. I'm going to go to the Playboy Club, and I'm going to get Playboy bunnies to come out. You know, that's another Fred thing. He was kind of a man about town. He knew all the nightclubs and the Playboy Club and all these kinds of places. And so he would chat up these girls and say, hey, listen, I'm going to put your name and your your image in the newspaper. You're going to be famous. Oh, yes. View her as you will. A bunny can be most appealing. And we had a press conference with the commissioner of parks, um, which is right there by the Tavern on the Green. But there were the Playboy bunnies with their high boots and their short shorts. Reporters wanted to know. Would the bunnies actually run? Uh, they certainly will. They're New Yorkers, and they're part of the Sports for New Yorkers program. <laughs> what about that? Are you? Oh, sure. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> you looking forward to it? Oh, yeah, definitely. The bunnies didn't run. Nina wasn't happy about that. 
The thing I didn't like is I'd rather have people go in there and try it, even if they walk the whole thing, you know, to finish it. But that's not why Fred got them involved. This was classic P.T. Barnum Fred. It was a stunt. Of course. You know, when he would do something like the Playboy Bunny thing, Nina and I'd look at each other and go, oh, give me a break. It's crazy thinking about Playboy Bunnies being part of any publicity for a women's running race. But at the time, it was Fred Lebo doing his thing, getting publicity any way he could. Fred wound up recruiting 78 women to run in Crazy Legs, which is about 70 more than they thought they'd have. And I often called him a huge male chauvinist who was a huge, huge supporter and believed totally in women's equality. So he knew how to manipulate women, but he also knew how to manipulate for women. Fred's publicity stunt gave Catherine and Nina and the other women runners a successful and newsworthy race, one that was intended to send a message to the AAU that long-distance female runners were serious. And that message came at exactly the right moment. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. I must say 1972 was so enormous. Women were admitted to the Boston Marathon. Some women with a separate start time. That was in April. And then in May, the Crazy Lakes Road Race. And then in middle June. Title IX requires schools to open up facilities to men and women alike on an equal basis, especially in such areas as home ec and shop, which have been traditionally segregated by sex. Richard Nixon signing into law the Title IX amendment to the Constitution which effectively leveled the playing field in sports for women in the United States. Women want all the rewards that sport can offer. The joy of performance, the satisfaction of striving, and all the lessons to be learned from competing with others. And that that impact was huge. A rising tide lifts all ships. Title IX was a game changer, but it didn't change things overnight. It would be a few years before the new law was fully implemented and start to really have an effect. And in New York City, the AAU was holding fast. 
Sure, they would allow women to run in the 1972 New York Marathon, but not in the same race as the men. The women would have to start 10 minutes earlier. They needed the women to be identified separately, but it seemed unfair then. It just seemed a little still discriminatory. But New York was Fred Lebo's marathon, and he wanted to help the women. Fred was right behind this all the way. And by now, so were some other male runners. We wanted to send a, a clear message to the AAU that it was the desire of the women to run with the men. Paul Fetcher helped lead the New York City Roadrunners Club alongside Fred. He was vice president that year. So sometimes you got to listen to the athletes. The athletes didn't want a 10-minute gap between the men's and women's races. Well, I was an adult and I don't have to take this anymore, you know? <laughs> Nina, Paul, and Fred decided to put their heads together. Catherine was out of the country. I was working as a journalist at the Munich Olympic Games, but I knew whatever was going to be going on with the race, the fight was in really good hands. Not long before the big race, the New York Roadrunners Club met up. All the leaders and competitive runners were there, plus some girlfriends and wives. I would say that probably happened at the subway. Let me correct that. It was a blimpy. Well, I guess blimpies are gone, but it's sort of like a subway. Jane Murka was there. She was married to one of the runners. It was a blimpy, and it was on the ground floor of 15 Park Row. It had uh, just long tables, and uh, there would probably be 8 to 12 people that were involved with the Roadrunners Club, and that was their meeting ground. They didn't have an office. I just remember we got together and talked, and we decided... And I don't remember if I said it, Nina said it, Fred said it. They came up with a plan. Maybe if they took a stand, they could get the AAU to let men and women run the same race together once and for all. And Fred hoped make the New York Marathon a really big deal. Bigger than Boston. That'll work. The group agreed to keep the plot a secret and let it drop as a surprise on race day. Then the start of the marathon run. 26 miles and 385 yards. Fred had invited lots of reporters to the event. Gerald Eskenazi of the New York Times was one of them. He admits women's sports were not high on the priority list, even for the country's most prestigious paper. The only reason we covered women in sports was for their looks for the most part. They, you know, they were not perceived as athletes per se. But Gerald came to the marathon. He liked covering events because they were an easy way to rack up bylines. I thought it would just be great on my resume, you know, because um, I'd been doing a lot of feature writing and things like that. I didn't think it would be some sort of uh, seminal moment in the women's movement. Altogether, there were less than 300 runners registered to run that morning. You barely had enough for a pinochle game back then. Of the 278 runners, only six of them were women. Jane Marka from the Blimpies meeting was one of them. We were getting ready to leave for the to get into the city, into Central Park, and just very quickly went to find something to wear. And I ended up taking my husband's Superman shirt. It was just a last-minute thing. We all got our gear on and our running shoes. Woman number two, Liz Franceschini. We lived on the Upper West Side and walked over. It wasn't too far. It was probably about a 9 a.m. start. So we get out there and getting ready to run. 
Paul Fetcher's girlfriend at the time was woman number three, Kathy Miller. Nina, woman number four, was there, warming up at the starting line, and Lynn Blackstone, number five. I was called over to where the start of the race was. And the way the women were acting seemed strange to me. There was sort of like a conspiratorial thing going on. They started handing out signs. I didn't know what was going on. Pat Barrett, woman number six, was technically still a girl. 17 years old, a high school cross-country champion from New Jersey, the only female on her cross-country team, and the only woman at the starting line who was not in on the secret plan. All the women were saying, something to do with the AU. Pat had just shown up to run, but it was suddenly clear that whether she liked it or not, she was about to be a part of something more, something involving a flurry of handmade signs. I didn't make the sign. It was handed to me. So next thing I know, someone's handed me a banner, and then everyone's got one. The women are standing there on the line, holding the signs behind them. The male runners were milling about, waiting for the women to run so they could begin their own race. One guy tried to rally the crowd in a chant, men and women together, but it didn't take. Meanwhile, Fred and Paul waved over the journalists. I told the photographers before, guys, you might want to get over here. You might want to get a picture of what's going to happen. It was just about start time for the women's race. The gun would go off any second. Before the gun, oh, that was nervous making. Fred was the race director. He called everybody to the line, fired the gun. And then the gun went off. We all just sat on the starting line. A woman in the crowd shouted, right on. A man screamed, chauvinist pig. And then... We sat there. Nobody ran. The women just sat there, all in a row. I remember it being quite calm. A photographer snapped a picture. I was standing next to the photographer from the New York Times who took that photo. It was a great shot. What the photographer saw through his lens were six women seated on the pavement, most of them smiling, looking at the crowd, Jane's face beaming over the Superman logo on her shirt, and her sign. The poster I had said, hey, AAU, it's 1972, wake up. Others said the AAU is archaic. I said they were archaic. The rules were archaic. I remember that. Spelled wrong. Yes. (laughs) Another read, the AAU is unfair. The night before, I made all the signs. One of them said that the AAU is medieval, spelled M-I-D-E-V-I-L. And I apologize for misspelling medieval. Only one woman, Pat, was not holding a sign. I didn't know at that age, I was 17, I didn't know what they'd do to me if I held a sign up. Pat's running career had only just begun. Losing her AAU card meant possibly losing a future. You know, I went to Catholic school, and you didn't know what what was going to happen. I didn't know what the AAU was going to do to me. I wanted to definitely support the women. I just didn't feel comfortable holding a sign then. So I was there. I sat in the line. The photographers snapped away as the minutes ticked by. Ten of them. It was now time for the men's race to begin. The women stood up and the gun went off for a second time, at which point the men took off running, including Fred Lebo, and so did the women. 
or some of them. As I recall, I did not. I just got up and walked to the side. I don't know how many yards I went, but I just ducked out. I wanted to get, you know, kind of out of the way. Fred Lebo ducked out too, complaining of heartburn. But two women finished the marathon that day, Nina Cusick and Pat Barrett. Because they started with the men, though, because they sat, 10 minutes were added to their time. It was the only way the AAU would consider the race valid. Well, it just wouldn't be our fastest marathons, but this was very important to protest. I really don't care in the record book if it says I ran such and such, because I know myself what I accomplished. It could be printed in your times at what time I ran, 329, but I know I ran a 319 on that course, and I was proud of that. That was a personal record for Pat. Even better, the secret plot worked. The AAU noticed. Rudy Sablo, S-A-B-L-O, was the managing director of the AAU at that time. And he goes, I heard about your stunt. Oh? He goes, yeah, you know, you, you fired the gun and the women didn't run. I go, what are we supposed to do? Kick them, beat them, whip them? What do you think we should have done? And he had no answer. Gerald Eskenazi wrote an article about that day for the New York Times. I had never seen a demonstration by women before. I mean, I'd never seen any bra burning. And to see women go against the establishment struck me at once as being odd because I didn't think of women fighting back. On the other hand, there was something I thought at the same moment, what would I tell my mother about this, you know? In his article, Gerald quoted Arnold Guy Freeman, a state Supreme Court justice who finished 29 places behind Nina Cusick. It's a damn shame, he said. Nina is a first-rate competitor. Any court would declare the ban unconstitutional. Above the article on page 39, the Times printed the photo of the six women sitting. It took up four columns. Soon after, the AAU scrapped their discriminatory rule. I think the AAU looks silly because here we were at the surge of the women's feminist movement in general, where there were lots of signs and sit-down strikes and demonstrations. And I think that that was not only a slightly embarrassing thing for them, but It was a wake-up call to, come on, let's get real. I definitely believe that the sit-down strike in New York was both a publicity stunt and both a statement for women's equality. And I think that they could live side by side. It's like saying the women marching in the streets today or even at the height of the feminist movement in the early 70s, late 60s, Uh, that carrying signs was a publicity stunt? Of course. We're trying to get attention for a cause. They got attention for their cause, and they also got attention for Fred's cause. Within four years, the New York Marathon was a five-borough race, and the number of participants grew from under 300 to over 2,000. Today, it's the biggest marathon in the world, One where men and women line up together, where the glory is shared by everyone, whether you have a uterus or not. Fred, in his heart, believed in running and he believed in people running, whether they are males or females. Bottom line is he wanted everybody to feel like the hero in their own life. 
and that running could do that for people because he felt it. He said, running has made me feel like I can do anything. I'd like everybody to feel this way. The rhythm of the run, it just frees your mind, your life. You could think about anything you wanted. It just gave you a, a different kind of life that was so welcome. Running gives you freedom. Thanks for listening to 30 for 30 Podcasts. My name is Jody Avergan. Now, since this episode is so much about that great photograph, let me tell you right off the bat that you can see it on our social feeds. We'll be posting it soon. You can follow 30 for 30 or me at Jody Avergan. ESPN Film senior producer Aaron Leiden and I are series editors. This episode was brought to us by Transmitter Media. The episode was reported and produced by Krista Ripple. The senior producer was Amy Drozdowska. It was edited and narrated by Hilary Frank. Hilary is the creator of the Longest Shortest Time podcast and author of Weird Parenting Wins. You can find all of that at longestshortesttime.com. The executive producer for Transmitter is Greta Cohn, and you can check out Transmitter at transmitter.fm. They do really awesome work. Later this week, we'll be posting a bonus conversation between me and Hillary and Greta about the making of this episode. I'll tell you that none of us knew about this story before we started really working on it. None of us are really runners, but we fell in love with this story. And there's lots of other great tidbits along the way that we'll discuss in the bonus episode. Archival research was done by Megan Schub. The original score was from Allison Leighton Brown. This episode was mixed by Hannes Brown. Production help from Dan O'Donnell, Megan Tan, and Caitlin Pierce. Special thanks to Patricia Nell Warren, Dr. Jamie Schultz, Charlie Butler, Chris Weiss, Anita Scandera, and David Weinstein. Roger Jackson provided fact-checking. And a big shout-out to the New York Roadrunners for helping with this story. The 30 for 30 podcast team includes the producers Julia Lowry-Henderson, Mitra Caboli, Andrew Mambo, Ryan Nantel, Keith Romer, and Vin D'Anton. For ESPN Films, our executive producers are Connor Schell, Rob King, and Libby Geist. Our development team is Adam Newhouse and Jenna Anthony. Our team also includes Deirdre Fenton, Jennifer Thorpe, Kat Sankey, Louise Argianis, Maria Delgado, Tom Picard, Paul Williard, Eve Wolf, and Alex Bowen. The ESPN audio team includes Trog Keller, Tom Ricks, Megan Judge, Pete Giannisini, Ryan Graner, Devin McGowan, and Elizabeth Fearman. Our theme music was composed by Rishikesh Hirway, who also makes the excellent podcast Song Exploder. On our website, there's a transcript of this and all of our episodes and lots more. Check it out, 30for30podcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to 30 for 30 Podcast in the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. We'll be back soon with more 30 for 30.